stories from around the corner and around the country. You're listening to All the Best. Proudly supported by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. You're listening to All the Best from FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Madhura Prakash. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders past and present, and also recognise that the area where FBI Radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance and resilience for First Nations communities. This week, we're sharing the second part of Strong Stories of the Week, a live storytelling event that we put on with Word Travels for their 2023 Story Week. Have you ever messed up so badly you just wanted to sink into the floor and disappear? Our first storyteller, Ruth, has. Ruth's a professional writer, oral historian, and a nurse. Her story takes us into the life and death arena of the operating theatre. So methods of teaching were a little different way back. Early 1980s, I was training to be a registered nurse. Three years of study blocks combined with practical on-the-job experience in a dizzy variety of shift work and ward rotations. Competency was a relative term and achieved by one nurse watching another undertake a procedure and then repeating the same thing themselves, after which, voila, you were qualified. Not only to do said procedure, but to teach others. Watch, practice, teach others, repeat. There were flaws in the system. Busy, short-staff wards where no one had time to show you anything, or those where the nurse in charge followed strict chains of command and refused to speak to first or second year nurses at all, directing you to ask a third year, at the same time demanding you hurry up and get on with the allocated tasks, which included suction tracheostomy, changed intravenous fluids from 4% in a fifth to normal saline, decreased drip rate, 110 to 70 mils per hour, remove alternate sutures, check for signs of phlebitis, cellulitis, peritonitis, and always ensure timely entry in the patient record. Intensive care, graphs and monitors did the talking there. Loud, insistent, beeping declarations that something was wrong and you had to find out what it was and fix it, stat. Blocked, stopped, vital signs dipping low. The patient heading for that threshold, abutting death and life. Such relief when they turn back. The place quietens, life steadies and moves on. Cardiothoracic operating theatres, coronary artery grafts where the heart is stopped and a perfusion bypass machine does its work. Veins are taken from the leg and grafted onto the heart as an alternative blood flow for blocked arteries. The student nurse induction to operating theatres went something like, there's two theatres, that one and that one. Those are the sinks where you scrub up, gown, mask, hat, gloves, If you're a scrub nurse, don't touch anything after you've scrubbed. If you're a scout nurse, you can. 
Essentially, the scout nurse ran around fetching things from the storeroom that hadn't been thought of earlier. They also counted swabs to make sure the same number came out of the patient's body as went in. It was really stressful. Give me a 4-0 silk on a T16, the scrub nurse would yell. I don't know what that is. Suture material, it's in the compactus. Oh God, the compactus. The compactus was the size of a small Baltic state. Floor to ceiling, row upon row of shelves filled with every type, shape of supplies and no Google map or translator to help. I ran the length and breadth of that thing looking for a 4-0 silk on a T16. So many other urgent supplies, but I rarely found them. Most often so much time had passed that the request that they'd either forgotten or found some substitute, like, I don't know, gaff tape. As scrub nurse, I assisted the resident doctor in taking veins out of the patient's legs, which were then passed along the torso to the surgeon who'd grafted them onto the heart. It was extraordinary to be a part of. And I was always so careful with those delicate veins in what were hours-long operations, set against the backdrop of the surgeon's choice of classical music that tended more cello concerto than Ride of the Valkyries. But one day there was a problem in the adjoining theatre. The operation was going all kinds of wrong and there were yells and alarms and at the same time as I thought of the poor patient, I was so glad not to be anywhere near it. I didn't actually think of the poor patient. <laughs> Things changed quickly and the senior scrub nurse in my theatre was called away to help, so we all had to adjust positions, sort of football send-off style, and I found myself moved up the torso, as it were, to the business end of the heart operation. <laughs> the actual heart. The surgeon, whose may, name may or may not have been Victor Chang, made the first incision, <laughs> drawing his scalpel down the sternum in a line so precise and delicate it was pure art. Next, a deeper cut through soft tissue to bone, the diathermy machine stemming the bleeding, me swabbing up the errant droplets. Then an electric saw down the sternum, after which a retractor was put in place and wound open and then clamped, making room for hands to get in and around the patient's chest cavity. My job was to put my hands on the edge of the retractor until it was in place and locked. Oh, that's what I thought. There's nothing quite like looking at a person's heart, the vessel of love and yearning, fear, anger, Life coursing through veins and arteries, which for this patient had been for more than 70 years. And here it was, this heart, lying still, resting, as a machine did its work. Taking a pause from being awestruck, I went to move my hands from the retractor clamp and found that, unfortunately, I could not. Somehow, in the process of the retractor being locked in place, the tips of my gloves had become stuck in the clamp and would not, indeed could not, move. The only good thing was that I had on size six and a half gloves instead of my usual six, so it wasn't my actual fingers there, just the fingertips. But still, sometimes there's a moment in the disaster journey 
when what has happened is known only to you. It's private, intimate, and brings with it a deep clarity and appreciation. This is bad. <laughs> like, really bad. Around you, everyone is going about their business, but for you, it's a threshold between what was and will be. One reality becoming another. Let me wind back this retractor, the clock, what I have done. I'll do it better next time, take it slowly, differently. I'll catch the past that has now become present and change some small thing before it moves to the future. But you can't, can you? I moved quickly and with some effort wrenched my hands out of the clamp and then inexplicably held them aloft as if newly scrubbed and ready for the operation. Two gloved hands, each missing four fingertips. The surgeon looked at my hands held aloft. Eyes wide, he double blinked, then gazed down into the chest. Oh, he said. The latex fingertips were clearly visible. Trapped in the edges of the clamp, they looked like small sea creatures marooned by an incoming tide. Other people became interested then. <laughs> The resident doctor, the anaesthetist, the bypass perfusion guy, all saying more or less the same thing, that they hadn't seen anything like it, and asking how I'd done it. As if I'd had some kind of design in this latex stranding situation. Unfortunately, the senior scrub nurse reappeared and she was less curious than the others, and much louder. She said many things which in summary meant I was banished to the tea room where I pretty much remained for the rest of my placement. <laughs> the latex was removed and the patient lived. I think grew tired of me checking his progress. You'll be relieved to know I didn't pursue a career in operating theatres, nor did I ever have to teach anyone how to be a scrub nurse. What would I have told them if I did? Stand back from the edge. Objects may be closer than they appear. <laughs> I would tell them about the heart, though, how amazing to see its beat and rhythm stop and rest and then return. You can't go back because if you started, how would you know where and when to stop? And at some point in the future, you'd be trying to return to now and this because you totally missed it at the time. Mistakes, betrayals, disappointments, as much the fabric of life as those latex fingertips. Better to wait for the next tide to wash in, retrieve and replenish. Wait, watch, practice, repeat. That was writer and storyteller Ruth Melville. Our final two storytellers reflect on the strength we can find in the face of adversity and the way this intersects with Indigenous identities. First up, you'll hear Lungol Wakina exploring pressure. Then writer Lucy Norton speaks on grief and loss. 
Testing. Hello. Hi, everyone. Um, my name's um, Lungal Wakingana, and um, I'm going to do um, a bit of freestyle storytelling for you today. So this is called Pressure. I think it's normal for people to have a bit of pressure in their lives. Not a whole lot when you're born, maybe, but eventually it starts piling on. Born with long fingers, maybe a bit of pressure to be a pianist, a musician like your father. Started walking and talking much earlier than all of your peers. Maybe a little bit of pressure to be just that much further ahead than everybody else. The more you age, the more the pressure builds. Pressure to be a good son, pressure to be a good big brother. Nothing too intense for now. Nothing too hard to handle. But then, pressure to be a good boy. A particular type of boy. A boy that doesn't cry as much as you do. A boy that doesn't feel as much as you do. Um, pressure to be tougher. Tougher around your heart, around your mind. Maybe a little bit around your soul. And the pressure builds like the swells in an ocean, rising up on the shore and then back down again. And then when you're so precocious, you get put into school early because what else will they do with you? Um, so you're a year younger than everyone else. You're a bit smaller than everyone else. And the pressure continues to build. Not like other boys, the wrong kind of boy. And the pressure builds, crack. Not tough enough to handle bullying, not tough enough to handle jokes, not tough enough to be a boy, crack. And the pressure builds, but then you find out you're good at school. Actually, you're great at school. You're not the best, but you're very close. So, okay, can't make friends, fine. Can't stop bullying, fine. Can't impress teachers, win. Can't impress parents, win. So the pressure builds, and the pressure builds, pressure, to do well in school. From parents, it's just to do your best, but now for me, it's to be the best. So the ocean swells, the tide coming up, and not going back as far as it used to before. Discovers a talent for writing. Okay, we can make this work finds that words feel at home in my throat and find they come to place as if the stars had written them themselves. So I start writing songs at first and then poetry and then essays and then I call myself a writer. Now, am I a good writer? I have to be. Crack. 
good at sports? No, not like other boys. But good with his body, good at moving, good at dancing, maybe? Yes, a dancer, maybe. Pressure to be the best dancer. A dancer, a writer, an academic crack. It's all building up. The waves are coming up. They're not quite going down anymore. You can't quite see the shore anymore. Crack. Graduates eighth in his class. And there were only 40 people, so it's not as impressive. But they're a very smart class, so he holds it to his, his chest. At this time, the cracks are starting to build. The surface isn't smooth anymore. It's bumpy to the touch. It cuts my fingers when I try to pat it down to shape. Crack. The love of my life passes away. My grandmother, the woman that raised me, is no longer around and now I'm drowning. The ocean, too high to manage, too much to keep my head afloat, crack, crack, crack. Makes it through final exams, graduates, gets into university. First semester of university, barely recovering from a psychotic break. Maybe the pressure did get to him. Put on antidepressants for the first time. Not quite working, not quite not working. Barely passes his classes. Used to getting 80s and 90s, now barely scraping by on a 51. Crack. Next semester's not looking too good. Pushes through anyway and fails all classes. Crack. The final crack and the pressure releases. The ocean rises and continues to rise. A tsunami that did have warning, but had no mercy. Nothing left to crack, nothing left to hold back. Who was I without good grades? Who was I without being smart? Who was I without being brilliant? Drowning in the waves, drowning in my tears. Who was the shell that was so damaged beyond repair? As the ocean moved back out into the depths of the deep sea and the shore started to show itself again beneath the pale moonlight. 
It told me a rider and a dancer. Thank you. Just a quick content warning um, that this story um, discusses death and dying. And also I just want to acknowledge that we are on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people. Um, Our sovereign land and waters were never ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. This story is called Beyond Goodbyes. Time becomes a funny thing when someone you love dies. It morphs into different forms depending what point you're at. Has it really been five years since I lost my dad? Sometimes it feels like only minutes ago I was asking ancestors and angels to keep him earthside long enough for our plane to hit tarmac. In many ways, his passing tore the fabric of my reality, and I learned to hold two very big truths at once, that of deep, immense pain, sadness and loss, and then something else entirely, something beautiful, life-affirming, sacred. I had experienced death of a loved one before in my life prior, uh, my biological father when I was five, but being present bedside when someone, when this man who helped raise me, took his last last breath changed me inexplicably. Uh, It was hard to put into words and talk about openly. I feel like in this dominant Western culture, death is something often hidden away. When people are sick, they go to the big sick house, doors and curtains, visiting hours, sterile, white, separate, all of that. When people pass away in these places, they are literally wheeled away from you almost immediately. There is such separation between us and one of the most natural and common experiences in literally every single person's life. This path led me to explore dying and death in our culture and a burgeoning movement for death to be brought back to community. I know that in my lineages, and actually in all of our lineages, uh, death was a community responsibility. So when someone in a community is dying, there are roles that people take on as part of that obligation. The community is in partnership for end-of-life care. Everyone is involved in that, including children. When someone dies, there is ceremony and ritual... There are several instances of adequately and carefully processing grief. Maybe that looks like washing the body, sharing a space with the body for a certain amount of days or weeks, singing or chanting, shared and extended periods of grieving, like with mob sorry business. These things look different depending on cultural background, but as a whole, when most of our ancestors lived on the land, at some point it would have been done this way. And actually it was done this way up until very recently. Around the time of industrialization, um, things started to change. There is big money in death now and a fascinating history behind the medicalization and monetization of such a sacred rite of passage. I think being faced with this realisation or epiphany at such a pivotal moment in my life, when I had to reckon with the physical loss of someone so important to me, uh, really empowered me through my grief. I won't lie, the the first few months felt like a dream you suddenly woke up in and didn't know how to get out of. But I think that's normal in a world that hurries you along with something that just needs time and space. I trained as an end of life doula less than a year after he passed away. His death wasn't what I would call a good death, 
it was in the sense that he was medicated and kept comfortable and died with his loved ones around him. But due to his complicated past, he had a distrust of institutions, and I know for a fact he would have preferred to have died in the bush with the dogs and with us. I now know that is a possibility for almost any of us having been educated and empowered in our rights when dying. It has helped me face the fact that I too could die at any time and have an inherent right to dictate what that'll look like. So many of our experiences with death have been difficult, traumatic, almost unbearable. And then we're faced with these strange social rules that tell us we aren't supposed to talk about it. We're supposed to take a few days off work and then get back to it. We're supposed to feel some sort of closure after a funeral and that's just not true. Grief is so multifaceted because it forces you to confront your own mortality, the mortality of people you love. And so with all of these big emotions around something that has societally been swept under the rug for quite some time now, it's a big thing to sit with. There are many complexities and layers to dying, death and grief. Grief is an experience that often does feel like it lacks autonomy and agency, like we are thrust into this new world and we don't get a say. Things are just happening and we're there. But in some way, facing this situation and it teaching me about death and grief in a way I had never considered prior really changed something for me or opened something up within me. And I know that this is a common experience for people who have lost loved ones, to feel like something has opened up within them. Something has changed and things won't be the same. And that's okay. Because I think there is a potential for significant connection through these experiences. Connecting with people through a shared experience of losing a loved one has been an unintended and surprisingly wholesome consequence of what can ordinarily be a really hard and sometimes horrible situation. And I think that's a testament to the fact that dying, death and grief should be shared. It should be communal. It was shared and it was communal for so long and it would benefit us to return to the old ways in this respect. In my cultures, when someone dies, it doesn't mean they're gone forever. And I grew up knowing that. In this culture, science says that energy cannot be destroyed, only transformed into new states. When I lose someone, I know they transform in ways I can't really explain, but I can feel. There is a word that some of you might know, uh, everyone, which is an Indigenous concept of time where the past, present and future are all interconnected, almost a sense of timelessness. When people die, I believe they return to this place of all time, of no time. And although I am governed by societal linear time, I too can access this place and do so all the time. Whether it is seeing the exact make and model and colour of my dad's car drive past when I'm feeling nervous about something, black cockatoo soaring above me when I'm thinking about him, hearing a song he introduced to me as I walk past a cafe or walking the same tracks on country he taught me how to read. In these moments, I can access everyone, somewhere he exists still and will forever, somewhere we exist together again. I'm a poet, so I'm going to end this yarn with a poem. I still had more to say, but you were no longer lucid. Hope you can hear me now. I wanted to say, hey, I love you. For you to say, we gave you the family you always wanted. To let you know that when you picked me up as a kid, it felt like I was going to fly. 
that when you came into our lives, it was at a time I thought grief might grind my bones into nothingness. Instead, this fatherless child felt cradled again. All that I know what you sacrificed to keep being here, to go on despite the pain of living, to hope that the love outweighed it just so. But you are quiet now. The nurses say there is so much love in this room and they are right. I run from the sticky leather seats in the visitor's room to hear the rattle, to let you go. Mum holds your hand to your cold and blue. Subtle like sleeping child, they will you away. To every when, where there is no end or beginning. No time when we aren't still bush-bound in silence, humming only to the sounds of life. It is there that I meet you, among the gum trees of forever. I'll put the kettle on. Hey, I love you. I know you can hear me now. Thank you. That story was shared by Lucy Norton, storyteller of Darug and Quechua heritage. Just before that, you heard writer, performer, and artist of Indigenous Papua New Guinean heritage, Bungo Wakina. Strong Stories of the Week was part of Word Travel's Story Week 2023. The composer was Elizabeth Jigalin, and sound recordist was Harvey O'Sullivan. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present. I'm Madhura Prakash. Thanks for listening.